Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 13 of the Dan Wilkins Show. We have our second special guest in this new format and revival of this talk show that I've been running for about two years. And like I said, we weren't exactly going to interview the multimillionaires, the A-list athletes, but today I do have a guest with a lot of interesting stories and somebody that I've known personally for about a year now. This is Ben Smith. He works um, for Manhattanville College as a play-by-play broadcaster and also as a side gig, um, does work for the New York Yankees and I want to say New York Rangers in, um, in special effects for the broadcast and everything like that. How about you describe what you do for Yankees and everybody else uh, in a more detailed way than I can? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here on your show. Um, so my, my big paid job is I work for a company called Brand Brigade. And Brand Brigade, we do the virtual ads for sporting events on the broadcast. So whenever you're watching the Yankees on Yes, and you see the ads on the back of the mound or on the batter's eye out in the outfield, that's me. And more specifically, during baseball season, I jump back and forth. I do Yankees. I do Mets. I do the Peacock Sunday leadoff game every Sunday. And then I've done a few Rangers games, but I'm actually usually the primary for the New Jersey Devils. Um, over at Prudential Center on MSG Plus. Uh, sometimes I'll do Red Bulls. I do a lot of Nets and Celtics during NBA as well. Um, and then occasionally I'll get opportunities for other other teams that aren't on my regular schedule that I'll jump over to. Like sometimes I'll do the Orioles or Nats for Mazin. And then I also I travel every October um, with my with my coworkers and a lot of the guys at Fox and it'll be network for the MLB postseason in October. Well, that's very interesting. I I didn't exact. I haven't exactly heard it in that context used uh, to that detail. So that's that's a lot more broad than than what it is. So you don't directly work for a specific team. You work for a brand that provides the uh, virtual ads for these games. Yeah, I'm a third party contractor, um, and we get contracted first. We get the license from the league. Mm-hmm. My boss Sam gets it from the league and permission to do it because there's a shared revenue that goes into this with the virtual ads and the virtual ads show their staying power during the pandemic when there were no fans in the stands. So a lot of times we would put tarps up there that looked like they were, they were real, but they were actually virtually imposed. And then afterwards people, the companies and the teams leagues wanted to keep us on and find ways to implement us still, even with fans back. Um, so we get licensed by the league and then the teams that want to do the virtual ads, they opt in as, as they want. That's, that is very interesting. I will say um, like for my home team, the Phillies, um, we have an actual role of physical ads behind home plate that go through and any ad that's like behind the mound. Um, I've, I've uh, at least on one occasion, I've seen it in person, like it is inscribed and it is a real thing. But for the Phillies, like they don't have just a green screen behind home plate. Now, if this were, say, an ESPN Sunday Night Baseball game, for example, Sunday Night Baseball coming this Sunday to Philadelphia when the Cardinals are in town, um, that's going to be different because they'll put in a green screen behind home plate. And, you know, the whole shebang. But with, with yeah, Sunday Night 
with Sunday Night Baseball, a, they want to mm-hmm. advertise their brands. They don't want to advertise what the Phillies want to advertise. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they want to advertise what they want. And that's exactly what the virtual ads are for. We see it a lot, as you said, during the MLB postseason. And you would also mention the Celtics. That is pretty far away from the New York Northeast area. It's kind of like a so, alienated thing. What's going on with that? So some so my gigs vary in terms of where I am. Some teams by ver- and this and this varies based on the network and the, the organization, what they, what they think works best for their broadcast. Um, some like Yankees and Mets, they want me there at the production truck right there at, at the ballpark on the NBA, NBA side. I usually do most of my NBA stuff from the studio. So with Nets, I'm at the yes network studio in Stanford, about 15 minutes from where I live for Celtics. I go over to the CNBC headquarters in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, because the distribution center is inside that building. And so they put me directly into the NBC Sports Boston feed um, downstream, and I'm right there as it's getting distributed. Okay, so you are not, let's say, if you're doing a Yankees game, you're not at Yankee Stadium. You're working more remotely in a different place, like for Boston, you said. With Yankees, with Yankees, I am at Yankee Stadium. Okay, so you are at Yankee Stadium for that, but for the other yeah. stuff that you said, like with the Celtics, that'll bring. I'm surprised you said the CNBC headquarters because they don't usually do a lot of sports stuff except for like one offs. Like I think there was, a, I think there was one NASCAR race last year that had a CNBC feed when it was like really off and it was well, like a, a really off time. I think. Well, it's not necessarily CNBC, the channel itself. Right. It's NBC's distribution centers there. All 65 NBC networks and affiliates pass through that building before okay. they go out to your TV providers. That makes and sense. And that's why they're able to do it. We're able to do it from there. Mm-hmm. And then obviously for the Peacock game, I'm at NBC Sports in Stanford um, okay. down there because they, with all the Peacock streaming stuff, you're kind of skipping the middleman there because it's just going straight to the consumer. Yeah, the 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 streaming services that have been going on in in sports and have been rising in sports as of late. Um I think that Peacock does a pretty good job with what they do. Um although I do find that the streaming services that are sometimes exclusive can be a bit prohibitive to the consumer because you see the Apple TV Friday night baseball games, they are apple tv only there's no other tv feed so if you don't have apple tv or you're not willing to pay for apple tv i know there's a lot of cable cutters out there but the people that still have cable probably shouldn't be left out of that i i don't know if that's a conflict of interest for you to comment on but um but what do you you have an opinion on that for the streaming well as as you all know dan in this industry the dollar is king yeah and i think people are seeing that they're not quite ready to drop cable just yet because obviously our parents' generation, like Gen X, baby boomers, they're still, they haven't quite moved to streaming yet or they're just not going to at all. And some are unable to. Yeah. And some are unable to, like if you're somebody who lives out like Wyoming or the Dakotas, for example, getting access to streaming where you don't have very good internet is going to be, impossible and so cable is going to be king in certain markets as well and i think as far as this goes for the younger audience the streaming appeals to them because we're seeing i'm a cord cutter myself i don't have cable i use youtube tv 
Um, we're seeing a lot more cord cutting from millennials and Zoomers. And because of that, the networks see that. That's why we're starting to see this arms race of not only an explosion of streaming services competing against each other, but it's also everybody's competing for content and exclusivity for that content. Because when there's exclusivity, that means they have to go through you. And I've been noticing, especially with the Peacock game, there's a lot of ad dollars that get pushed behind that. Because I would say the Peacock game, I know this because the Peacock game specifically is probably one of the most extensive um, and challenging um, virtual operations for a game I've had to do because we have the green screen behind the mound. We have the behind home, we have the, excuse me, the green screen behind home plate ad. We have the ad on the mound, the batter's eye ad. In addition to that, the green screen ad, the MLB ads switch every batter instead of it being sitting there for a whole inning, like at some of the smaller gigs, like, like yes or SMY. Um, they also summit, there's like three half innings we have that are given to advertising Peacock shows specifically. And then we have four half innings, which I'm sure you've seen on the Peacock game when you have this sometimes a lot of the stats mm-hmm. and how they re- relevant to the teams that are playing. And what we'll do is we'll cut away, have the Google StatCast logo cut away, and then come back. There's your ad. There's the uh, stats. So there's a whole, it's a whole extensive operation with that. And that was kind of a sign for me that there's some big money behind this. There is a lot of money in broadcasting. And I think that, um, that that's kind of what keeps the lights on because um, you, you have to realize that the people, the majority of the people that you are concerned about, if you're a sports team um, are maybe not the 30 to 40,000 fans that show up to your 81 home games. You are more focused on the millions of people that will watch every night um, in your broadcast. So the, the experience for television is a lot more than Mm -hmm. it would be in person, which is why these green screen ads, I think in the world series or NLCS, something like that, a couple of years ago, I remember Fox put an ad in center field at Dodger stadium. Now there's no, there's no ads in person in center field at Dodger stadium, but they put a, they plastered a giant camping world logo right there. And I think that it glitched out a couple times because it's such a moving part. If you have the ad behind home plate, the camera doesn't really move much from home plate because if you have to follow the ball, then you switch to another camera. That that camera that's stationed in center field that points to home plate doesn't move much. So it's probably not that big of a challenge for um, for that ad to be placed correctly, if I'm assuming, right? But those ads that are moving in center, have you had to deal with those, the ads that are like moving in center field and like in other obscure parts of the ballpark? Yeah, I've had that. And that has to do partially with the technology and the software that conducts the virtual ads. And sometimes you'll have glitches thrown off by a camera dissolve or something or, or a weird cut. And you'll get a, what's called a false detection where it's detecting where it's not supposed to be right. or it's not, or the calibration or the calibration is old because maybe the sunlight has changed or there's the cloud covers changed. It's gone from day to night and things like that. Little factors like that um, play into it. And that's usually a sign the operator needs to update the calibration. Or there's also, you can have 
a software glitch and it's not an operator error. So there's a lot of different factors based on the circumstances that go into that. Because this technology is still very new. It's it's not, I, I would say about 10 years ago, I don't remember there being a lot of green screen ads that were moving as much as these are. 10 years ago, there weren't ads behind home plate or not behind home plate. There weren't ads behind the pitcher's mound. Um, now there's ads on the players' jerseys in the NBA. There's ads on the mm-hmm. uh, on the glass boards at hockey arenas. Um, you know those ads that are constantly moving and trying to get your eyes' attention for those ad dollars. It really shows how technology and the advancement of technology and also the advancement of advertising have really clashed. And advertising has moved in a more general sense over the years. Advertising probably, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the main way that you would advertise um, might be either online in like a website or maybe um, even further back in print media. But print media, who buys print media anymore? All the newspapers that I'm subscribed to are online. I don't get the New York Times in the mail. I'm subscribed to the New York Times online. I don't get and the only newspaper that I get um in person with physical print is the local newspaper, the retrospect, which only covers like a five mile radius in the area outside of Philadelphia. So it really only covers maybe the County and that's about it. It's a very local paper, a very small paper, but they only print. They don't have any online content. They, they have some like teasers and stuff, but to get the full scope, you have to buy the, you have to buy the actual paper for a dollar 50. And that is how advertising has shifted. There's not a whole lot of advertising in this local paper. There's maybe a couple real estate ads, a couple ads for local businesses, but that's about it. And the way that advertising has shifted on a national scale has really shown how these companies can make a lot of money um, plastering their ads everywhere. And it has taken an effect on a lot of things. Now, I will say, Going back outside of the realm of um, virtual ads for just a little bit, your main gig um, is being a play-by-play broadcaster for the Manhattanville um, College that I thought was in Manhattan, but after doing further research, nope. it's actually a lot closer to the um, to the Connecticut border. So uh, used to be Manhattan. It used to be in Manhattan, yeah, and then they moved closer um, above Yonkers, per- but but um, yeah, so. Uh, Manhattanville is your alma mater and you came back to do some broadcasting for them. Um, I will, I will say, did you major in something like sports broadcasting when you went there? Uh, for my undergrad, no, it's actually a very long and interesting story. Which well, I'd I'm love sure to hear it. Big, yeah. This, it's a very interesting story how I got into it. Cause when I sat out and cause I, I'm not originally from New York, I was born in Maine and then spent most of my childhood growing up in Vermont. Um, so I grew up in the sticks out in the middle of out in the, the, the backwoods. So it's like when I first came to Manhattanville, I, I was recruited here um, for cross country track uh, by my coach at the time, Mike Owens. Um, he had seen, he had come up, he's a, he had spent a lot of time in Vermont himself and he had wanted going into the 2010, 2011 academic year wanted, he wanted some new England kids because new England kids there's no such thing as a flat cross-country course anywhere in New England. You're running up some sort of hill or mountain. So we have, and we're also used to running in very, very cold, harsh weather. So he was like, I want kids who, he's like, yeah, I want kids who 
are well conditioned and that can come in and can adapt to the rigors of collegiate athletics pretty quick, which I fit that bill. I was second in the state of Vermont for division three in XC. So I came here. Um, I originally was a political science and history major. So my ambitions were originally to get into government and politics. Well, the political science major, you just got to be a multimillionaire. (laughs) 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 Uh, I I, I just joke around a lot with the poli sci majors kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We've been seeing a lot of, uh, and even then a lot of my, my, one of my history professors, I still keep in contact with. He's actually the academic advisor to the athletics department, professor Lawson Bowling. Um, He'll tell you that like 96% of, people who get history degrees don't even actually work in the field of history because those kind of you either because you, you either become if you do get a history degree and work in the field you're either going to work in a museum and or in academia like there's no yeah it's, it's not a broad limited. field no and most of the people who work at the museums once they get that gig they will milk that gig for literally their entire lives right and that's what they love exactly and i found and I'll relate this to a story, and this will come back to this later as to why I didn't end up working in history. So while I was in college, I I did work also for the athletic department. I was a athletic trainer's assistant, and the, the athletic trainer there, Scotty Max, a good friend of mine, and I actually knew him before I went to Manhattanville because my mom is a retired massage therapist, and because of that, and they used to work together at annual massage national um, massage therapy conventions. Um, so because of that, there was somebody there at Manhattanville that I knew. And Scotty's also taking care of me from a health perspective for pretty much my entire adult life. Um, so then after I graduated, and I was, oh, and backtracking too, I was also the president of SUNAP Advisory Committee. Mm-hmm. So I would say as an undergrad, I spent probably 75% of my day was in Kennedy Gym on campus doing something with it, whether I was competing myself, practicing, working for the department or in meetings, just like on initiatives that athletes wanted, wanted to lead. And I had been in student government too. So people were like really happy when they got me a SAC president. They're like, okay, now we can start to turn SAC into an organization that can compete with student government, which we did. We were just as influential. Then I went into the, then I joined the army after college as a, and that's something I always wanted to do. So I always wanted to work in government or serve my country. My dad was air force. Um, my grandfather was Navy and an uncle in the army, another uncle in air force and goes further back. Great grandparents in World War II, you name it. And I was a geospatial intelligence analyst. So a geospatial intelligence analyst analyzes, um, satellite images, drone feeds, and other advanced motion tracking technology to find the bad guys, terrain, you name it, to disseminating relevant intelligence from that, building products for it, and then passing it on to command to do whatever it is they want to do with it. Um, I didn't really enjoy the Army because since I have a very analytical mind, I tend to ask why a lot. And anybody who's been in the military will tell you, you'd never ask why, because it comes across as um, questioning their orders. Yeah. Admittedly, I never took orders very well. <laughs> I, loved, I loved giving them, but I didn't, I didn't take them very well. Right. And it wasn't always asking why, like I was questioning the validity of orders. It was just, 
I wanted to know how things fit in the bigger picture. I love knowing how dots connect, how things work. What's the process? What's, how does everything I'm doing fit in the bigger picture? And people would still get angry at me when I would explain that to them. Um, And then I don't know if in hindsight, this could have been looked at as a blessing or a curse, but I got medically discharged because I suffered a really bad back injury when I was in the army uh, twice, actually first time was in, it was in uh, Intel school. I injured my back in combatives class and blew out two discs. Ooh. And then I, I didn't know it at the time yet because the, when you're in a training and when the training and doctrine come in for the army, it, their mentality is just get them out the door as quickly as possible and to their unit. Right. Um, and let them, they're not there. exactly there for extensive in-depth care. Exactly. And they did, they sent me to a trainer and did some movement stuff, some treatments, which seemed to help in the short term, but I didn't realize as those discs had my, the comp- stability of my back was compromised. So a year later I was weightlifting and I went doing clean the jerks. And when I came down to squat down, my back buckled in an unnatural way. And I felt, and I backwards. Yeah. Like I bent mid, like mid back and that, that pretty much did it. And then I lingered for about two more years. That was in 16. That last injury happened. And then I lingered until about late 2017 and I was full. My contract was originally supposed to end in 2019 with the army. Um, but I got in 2018 because my Sergeant, Sergeant McPherson saw how bad my health, health was declining. And he was like, Smith, I can't let you keep doing this to yourself. So I'm sending you for a fit for duty physical, which obviously I failed. And right. then they had me out the door four months later. I, my last day of work was April 12th, 2018 with the RA. Now, do you think that the medical discharge, do you think you said that w- that that was a blessing and the curse? And you said that you didn't really enjoy your time in the army because you didn't enjoy following orders. Now, I will say, um, like for myself, I my family does have a pretty long military history. Um, both of my grandfathers are vets. Um my grandfather on my mother's side um, served in the Navy. And in fact, his best thre- uh, friend in the Navy, Danny Lee, is who I am named after. Um, except my middle name is not Lee. It's named after my father. But, um, you know, Danny Lee was his best friend in the Navy. And um, I, we even think that my grandfather's life was saved because he injured his knee. He blew out his knee tripping over something in the oh. Navy. And keep in mind, this was just before Vietnam. He was serving in Korea at the time. And this was just before Vietnam got off the ground. And if he didn't hurt his knee, he probably would have gone to serve in Vietnam. And you know what happened from there. Um, And it either would have saved his life or saved his livelihood. And um, eventually married my grandmother in 69 and uh, or not 69, uh, 65. And the rest is history. So um, like for for my grandfather uh, on my dad's side, he also served in Korea I want to say in the army, I, his, his military history is pretty vague. He hasn't described it to me a whole lot, but um, I had no idea that you had served in the army. And I think that also goes to show that when people think of the military, people think that you're fighting on the ground in like Afghanistan and stuff, but you had never left the U S for the army, right? No, you would stay, no. you would stay back at home. What base were you out of, or did you work at a base at, at all? I was at Fort Drum, New York. Okay. And funny how everything seems to come back to New York for me. Um, like as soon as I left New York to join the army, they sent me right back. They sent you right back. Um, 
Um, that was up, that's upstate New York, right? Where oh yeah, like it's a whole like, whole bunch of whole bunch of empty. You're land. about thirty bit. You're about thirty minutes from Canada. That's how far north it is. Okay, so close. And to you're Buffalo. right next. Yeah, right up. No, not Buffalo. We're up by oh. Lake. The end of Lake Ontario and the beginning. Oh, of the okay, that's River. way up, up there. Up in that yeah. corner, yeah, that's way, we're up way up there. Way up there. That's and, closer to Quebec. Yeah, and we get hit, and it was we were always getting hit by lake effect snow up there. The winters were long, but I didn't mind that because mm-hmm. being having grown up in Vermont, I'm used to long winters. Yes, and driving was not a problem, though it was funny watching some of my fellow soldiers who are from the deep South who had never seen a day of snow in their life <laughs> trying to drive around and just seeing them. Cause some of them thought oh, I'm going to get my big suited up truck up here. And yeah, that's not how it works. I, I recall one incident I'm driving down. I forget the name of the main drag on drum that goes around the outside of the units. Um, I was heading down towards the gate. I was going to go see a movie, um, Watertown. And this guy in a Ford F-350 from with a Florida plates just comes flying by me. Ford like, F-350 is like one of those Sprinter vans, right? That's the, that's like, no, that's like the big, the big truck with four wheels in the back. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. know what you're talking about. Cause that's my grandpa super, is a it's the Ford F-150. Yeah. The 350 is yeah. like the super duty. Yeah. It's 150, and, 250. And it is, and, and so he disappears into the snow because of how, how bad the snow squall was, but it was right. leaving a, it was carving a wake into the snow, how, how fast he was going. And I'm going under the speed limit. All of a sudden, just faintly in the distance, I see this explosion of snow. He had gone off the road into the snowbank and I went and helped him out of his truck while the MP, before the MPs arrived. And was he okay? He was okay. His okay. pride was, the truck was undamaged, thankfully, from, because of how, 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 thick those things are but yeah probably probably the snow snow. the snow probably stopped his um his momentum so it didn't exactly crunch up the truck as if he would have hit a brick wall but it just hit the snow yeah he but he needed a toe out of there but that's just related stories but i I was at fort drum with 10th mountain division um with second second brigade the intelligence cell for uh second brigade combat team and initially when i was there i was they, because I had a college education, they decided, oh, we're going to, you have a college degree. Good. You can do paperwork. Well, we're putting you in the orderly room. So they put me in the orderly room for the intelligence company, which I only lasted like four months there because of the aforementioned not taking orders well. Yeah. And in that position, you're, you're taking orders from the cap, from the commander, the XO. Um, but if your main job first, is paperwork, how, if your main job is paperwork, how hard can that be? You're just filing papers. Uh. When the three when the three leaders are not on the same page, and that's a good point, not communicating with each other, and then you're in the middle trying to f- figure out what to do because the orders keep changing, and the orders and, from and, three people who are disagreeing and not communicating well, that just creates a a whole chaotic chasm. Yeah, and even though we had our weekly staff meeting, one day the first sergeant would come in and be like. Smith, I want it done. I want this done this way. I'm like, all right, go to doing it. All of a sudden, here comes the here comes the commander. I want it done this way. Okay. Usually, I mean, I should have known at that point that the commander's the commander, so his authority is final. But yes, it was always confusing with that. Then I was also because even if his authority is final, you look at those sergeants that are a little bit further down in line, and you don't want to say no to them. 
because oh, even, they've been in for like 16, 17 years. They've been doing this a lot longer than he has. Yeah, even though he is the commander and he is the final authority, you also have to consider that he may not be the most uh, the the candidate with best seniority. And even though his authority is the final say, who wants to say no to a sergeant in the army? That's a task yeah. that even I wouldn't want to take. E- even if you know exactly whose authority is final, it's hard to say no. It is hard to say no. And that was another thing that goes on that was hard for me. It was like knowing when to say no, but doing it in a way that wasn't misconstrued as disobeying an order, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like trying to go in a way like, how, is there a better like trying to say it with all due respect, sir, is there a better way to go about accomplishing the goal? Yes. And that was another, like, me trying to figure out how I fit into the big picture. And again, leadership doesn't like it when you question them. So no. I, I, I would get, get, get my rear chewed out for that. Um, and then they reassigned me to being with the boss. Then I got reassigned to headquarters where I was the second brigade boss rep. Now, boss is better opportunities for single soldiers. So it was dealing with the morale side. Oh, it's and an I acronym. This, okay. Yeah. Like every, everything in the Department of Defense is an acronym. Oh, yeah. I just, I I just thought you meant boss is in like you were the boss of somebody. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but I did, I did oversee like the, 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 the boss representatives for each unit right. and made sure information was disseminated to them. So in that kind of regard... It was in charge. And I enjoyed that assignment, actually, because it was because of the unconventional nature of it. Mm-hmm. And early on in it, all the other brigade representatives phased out and new ones came in and I was suddenly the senior guy. Ooh. And so I was kind of helping them. And how far along were you at that point? Adequate. A couple months? I drum four months when they sent me there. And then and I'm saying when you became that. When you became the highest seniority position in that command. I think within four or five months there, like obviously the boss count, the council, like the president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, they oversee me. But then below them, I was the next senior within four to five months of me being there. And then sometimes units would send a guy who, who there was one unit in particular who sent a guy, Jackson was his name, who was fresh out of, literally fresh out of training. Instead of sending him to do his job, they sent him straight to the boss program, which mm-hmm. they failed him when they did that. Like because of that, he hadn't had time to get learn the discipline of being like the ins and outs day to day of being with a a real line unit. And so we kind of had to teach him that, even though even though we weren't exactly a conventional um, command, we were with Garrison and the and uh, MWR. And suddenly we have this 19-year-old kid who's never been an adult in his life, and we had to help him with that. So that was that was a good – I thought that was a good experience for me. That's why I said earlier that the Army, I had some mixed feelings about it because mm-hmm. it did teach me some responsibility and discipline, and I did learn to become a self-sufficient adult because then I had to pass it up. And I came in the Army a little older at 22. By this point, I'm like 24, 25 and suddenly I'm teaching someone five, four or five years younger than me how to basically transition into adulthood. And so I from think that that's perspective, why, yeah, and from I think that perspective, I think the army was a blessing. And I think that's why a lot of people enlist in the army. They don't want to like 
I don't I don't think they're going into the army willing to shoot down some enemies with an AK-47. They're trying to find a, a different path and how to uh, transition into adulthood. I have a, um, a, I had a classmate of mine this year. Um, he had turned 18 years old over the winter and he um, he actually enlisted in the Marines. Now, I, I don't know yet if he's gotten in or not. He's still involved in like the process of actually getting approved or denied. He's more just kind of in limbo right now. But um, he uh, didn't really have anywhere to, to, to go and he, and he didn't have exactly, let's say the best raising, like he, he didn't exactly learn the responsibilities of adulthood and transitioning into adulthood, which is why he went, uh, to the military. And I think, I think that's a good example of that. Um, for, for yourself, you joined the military, you said you said you joined the military after you graduated from college, right? Yes. Okay. Um, something I'd always wanted to do, um, family family tradition. Um, but I also, <laughs> at 22 years old, when I was graduating college, I didn't have, it's, it's weird to say, but even like seven, eight years ago, um, things for our country, and where we stand as what's our identity wasn't really as complicated yet. And so I still had a kind of an idealized view of what America was and what it should be. In some cases I still do. And that's part of the reason I went in as well. Like, cause, and I still, I don't get me wrong for all the flaws of what goes on in the world today. I still love my country and I always want the best for it. Um, but I was a bit more naive to exactly how complicated the world is when I went in and the army kind of opened my eyes to like from meeting people from different parts of our country, just how complicated thing, just how complicated the nuances of life in general are. And like you're saying two different motivations. Like I knew guys from, different parts of the country who joined because a, they had no economic, no job or economic prospects going for them. They came from dirt, dirt poor. And so for, and for them, like the army was their way to make money and build a life. And th- that was their opportunity. The whole, the old, the old adage, go to war, or go to jail still exists in parts of the deep South. Mm-hmm. I knew some guys in the infantry units who would come into the Boston and I would just, talk to them, hear their stories. And some of them were, were, were juvenile delinquents growing up back wherever they came from. And when they turned 18, a judge told them you can either go to jail or join the army. And I was very surprised that that still existed, but surprisingly it still exists in some areas. And, and I think that shows, I think that shows how complex this country is, as you would say, yeah, it's yeah, not like, it it's not like this is some European country where everything is very con- uh, consolidated. And a lot of people, no matter where you are in that country, um, are very similar. In the United States, a person from California is very different from a person in New York or New Jersey. Um, people like my family that are from the New York area, a lot of my uh, dad's side grew up in Bayonne. And you can imagine how Christmas parties are with a family of a dozen to 15 <laughs> 60 year old from Bayonne. Um, yeah. <laughs> you could, ju- um, you could just imagine, you know, knowing where, knowing where you've been. Um, 
you know, and, and, and those kind of regional delicacies and those regional, um, I would say, original parts of American life are what make this place so special. Uh, I have never been west of Chicago, although I do plan to um, in, let's see, today's July 1st. So in 30 days, I leave for a two-week trip to California. Um, and that will be my first time ever visiting the West Coast. And I imagine there will be a lot of people there that um, that talk very differently, that have diff- much different ideologies and much different, um, you know, complexities in their society and their culture than what I have and what I have to go through, um, even, though going, we, even though we live in the same country. Oh, and just go into the voice chat of the Left Turn Lounge on a race day. You'll be hearing guys from, <laughs> you're probably, I'm not going to use name names because I don't want to insult anybody, but they'll be see, you'll see some guys from the stick. You'll know who I'm talking about, but yeah. you'll, see, you'll hear some guys from the sticks of the deep South who mm-hmm. sound like Boomhauer from King of the Hill. And you're sitting there like, <laughs> what the hell did you say? And I don't mean any, any offense when I say that, but sometimes it's like, it, like if you're not used like the, the different regional dialects of right. even American English, if you're not used to it, it can throw you for a loop. Um, and, and, and that's how I, it was been, to interview Ward Burton. I interviewed him two years ago. Oh my God. I, I needed, I needed, I felt like I needed a translator for the same language. To, to, to Dale, hey, to Dale Jr.'s credit, he did a great job of like keeping up with him and underst- understanding him on, on Dale I mean, Jr. they're both Down. from the that South. That was a great episode. So they're, they're, I, I haven't listened to that yeah. one yet, but like when I interviewed Ward, that was uh, August of 2020. So that, that was episode eight of the Dan Wilkins show. And I was still getting like my stuff off the ground. That was my first video interview. Like we're doing God, now. That must have been a, that must have been a treat. Ward, yeah. Like I've always, uh, even though I was a Ricky Craven fan, I always, I always thought fondly of Ward. Well, even but, though, even though I had interviewed Ward and it was a big step up for me, I'd, I, as the episode 12 forward, like the introduction that I had recorded actually about an hour ago, um, what I had mentioned was that the interview that I did with Ward, I had always felt like it was superficial. It didn't exactly dig into deep questions. It didn't exactly, uh, it, it left more, it left more to be desired, if you will, because a lot of people know the ins and outs of Ward Burton, but yeah. I don't think I revealed any more of them. I asked questions that you probably would have been able to find the answers to with a simple Google search or a simple blog or maybe another interview with Ward himself. And even though I'm very lucky to have been able to interview Ward, I don't think that I exactly fulfilled the um, the desire that an interview, um, the ideal interview would would have. And for um uh for what's his face for for context i will say that um that that ben works um more in a virtual sense not works but um he helps operate the left turn lounge which is a uh, nascar community server that i've been a part of i've probably been a part of it longer than you have i just don't um talk in it much but um i i've been there since may slash june of 2020 and um and even though you've been there for about a year, you've been kind of promoted. I came the- along. Yeah, I came along late 2020 during the playoffs. Yeah. And um, and you kind of rose to prominence then. And I think the the people that that own that that own that community um, have seen you as a um, a very responsible figure. And that's why they promoted you to the position that you have. Now, I have my own 
discrepancies and and thoughts about how things should be done. And I'm not going to delve into that because I'm here to talk about the more important things than operating a community with a bunch of 5,000 virtual heads. Um, (laughs) But I will say um, for your start in in broadcasting, after you were done um, high school, did you consider um, enlisting after high school or was that something that you hadn't really considered until after college? Uh, no, I didn't really consider it until, well, I, I originally, I actually originally, when I was in college, my freshman year, I was briefly in the ROTC program that was done through Fordham because Fordham handles the army ROTC for the entire New York area. But I was a bit overwhelmed by it because my first time away from home and going from living in a town of 4,000 people in Castleton, Vermont to suddenly living in a county with more people than the entire state of Vermont yes, was a bit overwhelming. And New York is very aggressive and not laid back like rural New England is. And that was overwhelming for me. And then I'm trying to balance classes, practice, going down twice a week to Fordham University to do ROTC classes. And so I dropped out of that because it's like, I wanted to focus on my running and my degree and just like, just trying to develop as a person and I say develop as a person because um I actually grew up with high I have high functioning autism right and that's something I've struggled with my whole life and at that time it was really a struggle because there were nuances to just human basic human behavior in life that I didn't cognitively understand because I guess the best way to describe it is a lot because of the intellectual side of the brain the social side for me, a lot of things growing up in those years, I had to learn like a skill, like somebody learns math, science, history, reading, etc. I had to, that's how I had to learn different human behaviors, emotions, and body language. And so just trying to do so much at once was just complicated. So I put that in the back burner. And originally I thought, I, I thought that dream was kind of going to go away and something else would come up. Um, but obviously it was always, something, like I said, always something I wanted to do, but then I start, I really felt delve, wanted to delve also into it post college because most of the people at that time, cause we were, the military was going through a drawdown because we were getting out of Iraq. This is kind of in that, in that, uh, in between of withdrawing from Iraq and before ISIS really became a major, major threat. Mm-hmm. because Obama, President Obama was trying to like end all the wars and bring the troops home. So a lot of these veterans were now becoming, taking the government jobs that me and my classmates graduating would be applying for. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if you can't beat them, you join them. Right. And I thought this would be a springboard to something bigger. So after I, so fast forward to getting medically discharged in spring 2018, I did have offers on the table to continue working in the intelligence community um, as a civilian contractor um, or, and I also had some offers from some of the four, the big three letter agencies to work in house there. Mm-hmm. And I could have made a lot of money from some of these, like a lot of money. And I thought about it and saw and thought about where do, where do I want my life to be 10, 20 years from now? And then I thought about it and said, I can't picture myself 
working in government for 10, 20, 30 years, needing, having to hold my breath every, every time a presidential election comes around. Because based on who wins that election, that dictates your fortunes working in government. Because maybe a candidate wants to cut back, wants to stop um, any sort of involvement in, in military venturism overseas and things like that, political polarization, as we've seen in recent years, it's, I, I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stress and anxiety that goes with that. And anybody, a lot of people work in government will tell you the same thing. And so I was like, no, I can't see myself doing this. And I, and I wasn't, and because of that, I wasn't really happy in the army. I was like, I don't think I'm going to be happy as a civilian on the DOD side either. So I would move back in with my parents and then a month after I moved back with them, they were moving to Virginia because my dad got a new job down there. I went with them and used part of my army severance to help fund the moving expenses. Um, and then I was going to school down there at Blue Ridge Community College to do some prereqs for athletic training. Because I thought back to, oh, I used to be a training assistant in college. So my, old, my, my old boss and friend, Scotty Mack, knows connections at some of the co- colleges in New York for um, athletic training like Seton Hall or Long Island University where he went and I thought oh I'll just get these prereqs in science and sciences that I didn't do when I got my degree done and then go for that well I came to find out towards I not only was I not very good at anatomy but towards the end of that semester um, I had developed arthritis from my army injuries and I also have arthritis in my right wrist for whatever reason and stuff yeah just just the wear and tear and the dot and you have to meet a certain there's certain physical standards you have to meet to be an athletic trainer like it's very it's a very labor intensive job because you Um, have to be up uh, tip-top shape yourself really to yeah because you're someone gets injured you got to carry them off the field yeah you have to be in a very good um in a very good shape to help other people who you know, who are hurt because if you're not in good shape, then what makes you qualified to, um, to help those people who are not, or are in need of, of assistance like that? Yeah, exactly. And because of that, they looked at, they looked at me and my doctors at the VA also looked at me and they said, you're not going to be a trainer. Mm-hmm. And they were like, it's just not going to happen. And so I failed at that. And, but I wasn't like deterred by it. So then I tried to take the LSATs, thinking, oh, I got a political science degree. Maybe I'll go to law school. Didn't do well in the LSATs. Never been a good test taker, like most of my cohorts in the autistic community. And then I looked at some of the different museums and gigs all, all over the country to see if there's any openings. And even tried to network with my old internship boss at the Rye Historical Society, uh, Sherry Jordan. They're coming for you. <laughs> yeah, I just heard that outside. <laughs> Um, they're, they didn't know any, they didn't have any openings and they didn't know anybody else in local museums around New York who had present openings at that time. And so I just kept throwing darts at a board, seeing what was going to stick. And finally, we're around 2019 now, um, spring 2019, I had gone back to Manhattanville for different alumni events. I had also applied there to be the cross country and track coach back in 2018 as the week I was leaving the army, I interviewed for that and I didn't get it. So I was still kind of, I was still in touch with the school 
and would go back for visits on occasion. And a friend of mine, Robbie Lynch, who was now a GA, and he had been an undergrad around the same time I had been. And he was a grad assistant as running marketing and promotions for the athletic department under the new AD athletic director and Manetta, who I'd gotten to know as well. And Robbie, along with Scotty, reached out to me. And then also Rob Gilmore, who was the financial aid director and veterans affairs director at Manhattanville at the time. And they both, I had kept in contact with the three of them for a long time. And they reached out to me like, you know, as I, as I told them about how I was struggling to figure out my next career. And they said, Hey, you should come back to Manhattanville. This place has always been home to you. You should try to take, why don't you take the sports business management master's program? You've always understood sports. Well, you've always, you always understood the nuances of, the, of business. That was the way you always approached things when you were in student government and in, and student athlete advisor committee come back and i thought about it and i originally said i would never go back when i finished my four-year degree. i think a lot of people say that when they yeah graduate a college. lot of people say that but enville manhattanville has a charm to it it's a small liberal arts school in the middle of purchase new york beautiful campus uh castle a castle on campus that used to belong to former vice presidential candidate whitlaw reed and it's just and also the people there I mean, yeah, it's a liberal, it's a liberal arts school. And I always felt protected there, welcomed. And I experienced a lot of growth there. Like the fact that people now can look at me and say, Hey, I wouldn't know you have high functioning autism unless you said something, unless you told us. I credit to Manhattanville and also the friends I made there who am, am teammates in, in cross country track and all the other athletic teams who just kind of embraced me and uplifted me and helped me um, become what I, what I am in terms of being a person who can function within normal society. And so I thought about it and I went and sat down with Dave Taromio, the director of sports business management and who I met five years ago when I was graduating, he had actually tried to recruit me to take that master's program when I was leaving to go join the army. I was like, I didn't think he'd remember me. And as soon as I walked in the door, he looks up and he goes, hey, Ben, it's been a long time. Good to see you. And I was like, what? <laughs> just that, 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 just that nature of like remembering somebody, even though you haven't seen them very much. And that started off a whole great friendship I've developed with Dave too. Um, and I sat down, he, he, pit, he gave the pitch to me. He helped, he and Scotty helped arrange with, um, Edmonetta, the athletic director at the time, and also the assistant AD, Julene, who I've, who's now the, she's now the athletic director of Manhattanville. Um, I had known her going back to my undergrad time, and they put me in under Robbie, my friend, as his marketing promotions assistant, um, as basically an intern there. Because of the GI Bill, I didn't need the standard grad assistant funding that most people did, because my housing allowance for the GI bill was five times what the college gives mm-hmm. grad assistance. Right. And so that, that was the start of it. And I just threw myself at the sports business management program figuring, and I, I was hooked on it instantly. And I was like, just trying to absorb anything I could. I didn't pigeonhole myself into one specific niche, just trying to learn as much as I could and see, just enjoying it and seeing where the journey took me. It was kind of nice that like, unlike back in college when in the army, instead of worrying where my life was going to be 10, 20 years from now, 
I was just focused on the moment. Right. And just enjoying the moment and seeing where it went. Broadcasting comes in at this point too. That's where I was. I was going to ask at one point on my agenda. I was going to ask where the whole. Yeah, uh, I know this is a long-winded story. To to the to the Manhattanville for uh, yeah. for college. So 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 tell me where that where that kicked off. So that kicked off because while I was a marketing promotions assistant, we were we had a bunch of new hires we were doing at that time. Um, we were hiring a new men's basketball coach, a new men's soccer coach and a new intramurals and recreation coordinator. And during that interim, I was also the acting interim coordinator in between the old one leaving and the new one coming in. And I did, I was, they, they asked me, they're like, Hey, Ben, would you be willing to be the tour guide? You know, this campus better than almost anybody. Would you be willing to, and you love the place and can sell anybody on it. Would you be willing to be the tour guide for all the camps? Like, yeah, sure. I'd be delighted to do it. Gets me out of the office because I don't sit still very well. And gives me, and I get to meet people. I love meeting people and talking to them. And I gave them for a tour. And everybody kept saying to, to Ed and also our sports information director at the time, Alex Falk, kept saying to them, hey, Ben is a fantastic tour guide. Like, that was the highlight of, like, this whole process. And they were like, they, and they became perked up by that. Because I, I would start out my tour going to the academic building, the dorms, the castle. And then I would end it on athletics. You always save the you always save the good stuff for the end of the tour, the grand finale. So when I would bring, by the time I bring them back to the, to the athletics facilities, I was noticing in the later candidate with the later candidates, Ed and Alex were kind of e- coming out of the office and eavesdropping on my tours, and I didn't think anything of it at the time. And then once we had finished hiring Chris Alisi as basketball coach and Paul Templeton as and soccer coach, um, they call, I get summoned to the office and I'm like, Oh, I wonder what this is. What is this about? At first I, the way, I don't know why I thought this at first, I thought I was in trouble for something or I had made an error on some marketing proposal I had written. Um, cause we were building up for golf for our annual golf outing at the time, but instead they looked a, at me. I think that's an impulsive thought though, where like you get summoned well, to an office, you never think you never. I don't think a lot of people think that that good things are going to happen when they get called into the office. Well, and also every time I was summoned to the office in the army, it was never a good thing. Yeah. Like if, like if people left me, left, left me alone, it was a good thing. So that's kind of, I guess that's why my mind immediately jumped to that conclusion. And I walked in and Ed and Alex looked at me and like, Hey Ben, we, we were listening to your tours and you're a fantastic storyteller and everybody and all the candidates loved you. And they were like, we have an idea. How would you like to, how would you like to go into the, uh, into the booth and do some a public address from us? And if you do get that transition to being doing some commentary for us and we'll put you with our primary play-by-play Tim Moore. And I was like, I'm sure I'd be delighted. I'll give it a shot. So I went up season opener for field hockey, was doubleheader field hockey and men's soccer. And I was, they gave me the scripts and they were going to originally pair me with another student who had done it before. And to like slowly transition to me. And Alex was like, all right, about an hour before game. He's like, he's like, all right, read through the script and give it and show me what you got. And I changed it like in my game show host type voice. And I was like, and you're Manhattanville Valiants and going through everything. And as soon as I put it down, him and his assistants, Ben and Nicole are just kind of glaring at me. And Alex goes, okay, skip everything we were playing before you get the PA for the whole, for the whole day. (laughs) 
And uh, the rest and what is history. Was this? These were uh, field hockey firsts for the first game that day, and then I did uh, men's soccer afterwards. Okay. So I did two. I did two games on my first day doing PA. Now and I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there for a second. You yeah, said sure. Tim. You said Tim Moore. Yeah. Because I feel like I recognize that name, unless it's a completely different fellow. Does is he like a heavy heavy set guy, red hair, kind of a beard? Does does is he a Ward Burton guy? Did he like NASCAR at all? Yeah, he liked NASCAR. I can't. I don't know if I. We've because been talking about NASCAR because this this is like a, a kind of epiphany kind of moment because back in 2020 I I um did this I did some charity work for a uh, uh for ML Botball which was like major league it was like MLB the show games but the commentary was taken out and actual broadcasters like us did the dub over and I called a couple games with a fella named Tim Moore in 2020 and he loved ward burton in fact he joined my offline racing league um in its first uh no in its second season in july of that year and i i i like kind of remembered the name i'm just like tim moore did he kind of have a higher pitch voice a little bit yeah so i think we i think we have i don't i don't remember what he looked like in person because we usually didn't have our cameras on for the for the broadcasts we usually just had our mics and we were like we were kind of like um just talking about and, st- and stuff like that but um it was for an or it was uh, a charitable cause for meals on wheels which they i believe donated over uh 1500 to over the course of the season which isn't much in retrospect but it was also 2020 viewership wasn't a whole lot and this was like a um a, a community driven kind of niche where it, it was like, you were just watching MLB the show games, but with actual real commentators that were talking live, people printed out lineup cards and everything like that. And it was very good. But, um, but, but Tim Moore, I thought, I thought I, I, I'd recognize that name. So I wonder if we just have a coincidence or if this is like a, cause Tim Moore isn't exactly the most uh, uncommon name. So I, I dropped a, one of our old, post-game interviews from 2019 with him in it see if that to, voice i will, have, a bell to, to I will have to take a if look it, at that yeah if see. it's same tim Moore, like i i love tim he's a great guy um and there's a lot of things the nuances of broadcasting that i picked up from him that were very important for me let's see uh if i'm able i'm gonna try to share the screen because in that way then um in that way, then I'm going to actually be able to, let's see, because then the audience will be able to hear this clip. Yeah. Uh, if I can, I don't know if it shows up. I can see it. Okay, you can see it. See so it loading. If it's trying to load. Here we go. So let's see what this is all about, because this is a, a, a quite interesting revelation that I'm. This would be very, this would be a very fun coincidence. Oh, let's see. Okay, 2019. Okay. It might be because we're on the Zoom call. Let's see. Let's see what's going on here. I don't quite hear the video. Uh, this is, oh my gosh, that is the guy. Yeah. That's, that's it's the same Tim Moore. That is the same guy. So how about that? That is, <laughs> I did not think that. I didn't think that in all my years that we would have a completely unrelated scenario because I, because the whole ML botball thing, it was discord driven. It wasn't like some other thing that we had used. So um, he had joined my 
my race league, um, the old, the, the one that you were a part of, but that was all the way back in 2020. And he was only there for like half a season. And that was when things were actually smooth sailing, but I can't, I, I'm actually pretty surprised. That was the same guy that I had called some, um, some virtual Phillies games with. Um, and we also had this fun broadcaster tournament called the broadcaster league, where we would actually play yeah. MLB the show. Um, and he was in that and then he kind of like dropped out after like three games cause he wasn't that good and he got no hit twice. So, um, I, I, I hate to stick it to the man, but that, that was, that is quite a coincidence that yeah, Tim, he ran into the same guy. Yeah. Tim's a, Tim's a class act and I, I've kind of lost touch with him during the pandemic. See, I gained touch with him during the pandemic. So yeah, that's, and where, that's where we crossed paths. Cause when the pandemic happened, there was no broadcasting going on. The sports world stood still, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but they, after doing some PA games for a while, they put me on color commentary paired with Tim. Tim was an undergrad at the time. He was, he was in his senior year, 2019-20 at Manhattanville. And he had done some broadcasting, I guess, in high school and then also got into it in college. And he did, he also, he also got picked up a lot for a lot of, one-offs with local games in different leagues and he was an absolute master at it and some of the nuances to make my storytelling better I picked up from him and like and he and I developed a great chemistry quick like when we were doing our post-game closeout sometimes it would drag on for like five ten minutes because we were just getting so enthralled talking about the nature of the game and what we had seen and Alex would be looking at us like doing yeah. the cut sign, like, yeah, hey, get, we it, gotta get go. it going. Yeah. Get it, wrap it up. <laughs> and I also learned like the nuances of interviewing from him. Like I learned a lot from him and I am very grateful to those for those moments too, because Tim is, I think Tim's an even better broadcaster than I am. Um, and he was the original, and I look back at him as like, he was the original voice of the Valiants. Um, and so I was paired with him, good chemistry. And I always, listen to him and to Alex is like making sure that I was a good color commentator with like analysis. And then also like when something exciting happened, doing my best, even if I got too excited, not like to get um, over, go over his play by play, make sure he, he could call the play first and then I could get my, my fun reaction. I think that was the issue with the with myself doing the virtual commentary back in 2020 is that you couldn't see the other person at the end of the line. Yeah. Um, so people were um, talking over each other constantly. They were they were struggling to to have good chemistry because it's best when you have a booth where the two people or three people involved can see each other are with each other in that space and they know the vibe of the room. Um I remember that I had called um, just last week um, for for our friend uh, for Echoes League uh, for offline NASCAR racing. Um, I'd called the Which Las I will Vegas. Be, race. I will be on the I'll be on the call for the two races this weekend. Actually, I'll have to I'll have to tune in when I get a chance. But you know, busy schedule now that I'm taking this talk show uh, and 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 moving up with it. But regardless, um, you know, when I called it at Las Vegas. A lot of people were talking over each other constantly, and I don't think that's the fault of the commentators. I think that's the no. that's just how it is, you know. When you're not when you're not in person with them, and um, also when you're at a virtual racetrack that doesn't exist, um, you know, it's 
it's hard to make that work. Um, especially, you know, considering how I did it for my league for like two years. Um, it's, it's difficult to do. Um, but that's why I always love when the commentators can interact with each other in person, they can interact, they can have conversations because really commentating is a conversation. You're conversing with the audience and yourself and with the TV. Um, and a lot of times with your color commentator as well. And I think that's what makes it so great is that it, it's true. It, it all depends on the style too. Yeah. It, it's truly an art form. Like you can teach somebody the nuances of it. Obviously not everybody can do it. You kind of need the personality for it. Cause obviously if, if if you're with somebody who's a, a real introvert, right. probably get to be difficult to make a good commentator because then you're going to have to try. You're basically fighting the whole broadcast to like pull something out of them. Yeah. I tend to like people who tend to be a little more overactive because mm-hmm. even if they interrupt talk over somebody on occasion, accidentally, you can teach them the, the cues of like in a conversation when it's good, when a play by play finishes his point. And then you transition to the color guy um, or it's a, or you can ask them a direct question. And so I think it's cues like that, that pick up on it. But I've seen some of these guys who do the virtual broadcast and don't necessarily see each other. If they can pick up on those cues, it actually might make them a better broadcast in the long run because they've learned to pick up on the vocal cues beforehand, before they get into the person to person stuff. Um and even when even though I was even though I learned in person from Tim and bouncing off him, um, it was always a two-way conversation. He was always like Tim hated calling a game just solo by himself. He loved having that color guy. And I can having called most of my games this past year solo, I can tell you it's much, much better when you have the color guy. Because the play-by-play doesn't always have the time to be the color guy. He's analyzing what's going on or he has stats in front of him pertinent to the game. Um, so that's why I, it's, it's, it, it makes it more fun too, as well. And with, with Tim, it was always fun. Always fun. I kind of felt lost touch with him after the pandemic happened. He graduated, but I, I really hope he's what, wherever he is, whatever games he's calling, I hope he has some good games down the road. Like, Tim's going to go far. He's, he, he's he a is very, he great is very commentator. Good. We had swapped color and play-by-play roles a lot mm-hmm. in our time uh, with ML Botball. And I, I definitely agree with what you were saying, is that he had a lot of talent um, or has a lot of talent. And it seems to have carried over as to where you last interacted with him and I first interacted with more. Yeah. Um, I, will, I will say uh, for broadcasting, you do – what sports do you currently cover at Manhattanville? I pretty much do pretty much anything that shows up on Valiant Vision, which okay. is our web That's streaming. like your TV network kind of thing? Yeah, it's our web stream. Yeah. And you can find it on goldvalliance.com backslash Valiant Vision. So I, it's pretty much, I think it's 14 or 15 sports. Holy the only cow. ones I don't call are across our cross-country track because we don't have any home meets. Even yeah. though having been a runner and alumni of that team myself, I'd love to call a track meet. Um, I was actually recommended into doing one of the track meets for my high school, but, uh, yeah, if you know, motorsports terminology, you can call it track. Yeah. It's human NASCAR. It's what I like to call it Yeah, because you're going around in circles. My, the high school track and all the high school tracks, 
they're the same length as um as the paved Bowman Gray Stadium, the Madhouse in Winston Salem. Mm-hmm. It's a quarter yeah. mile track that goes around with no banking, and instead of a bunch of humans with skinny legs that can go fast on it, you got a bunch <laughs> of banging stock cars and, and and you know and these in these late models or whatever they put out on that track, whatever you put out on there, it's bound to be a show, um, and like. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't even realize. I didn't even realize until I had measured the track, like in Google Maps. I'm like, I wonder how big this track is, and then I realized it's quarter mile. I guess that's a standardized size, but and that served as the inspiration for the LA Coliseum race we saw earlier this year. Yeah, um, and which which had its own unique state uh, shape, but like for um f- out of the 15 sports, boy, that's a lot of sports. Now is that like yeah. men's basketball, women's? Are you like so, grouping them I'll as separate the- sports? Yeah, I'll, and I'll give you the master list. Men's okay. and women's basketball, men's and women's hockey. Okay. Uh, men's and women's ice soccer. Ice hockey yeah. or field hockey? Okay, ice wow. And, field, okay. and women's field hockey. And women's field hockey, too. Okay. I guess um, it is upstate New York. It makes sense. Yeah. And um, I said men's and women's soccer, uh, baseball, softball, men's and women's lacs, uh, vol- women's volleyball. And this past year, for the first time, women's rugby. They've wow rugby okay. They just added women's rugby at Manhattan. No men's rugby sport. yet. There's no men's rugby in the NCA. Oh okay. I thought I thought I thought it would have been some sort of Title Nine thing, but well, that's why it's that's why it's only women's rugby because it's a Title Nine because it gives the school some leeway in terms ah, of getting okay. a big women's roster sometimes to offset their football roster. Ah okay, that makes that's sense. why. Yeah, gotcha. even though men's rugby is getting a lot immense popularity. Like it's as far as like some of the fastest growing sports in the United States, right? Men's rugby sevens is like really gaining some traction right now. I mean, it was already popular overseas in like Australia and Europe, but yeah, the games are done in a games are done in under two hours. Yeah, Rob Manfred is watching eagerly (laughs) (laughs) for those uh, those sub two hour games. Yeah, women's rugby that was a learning curve with that, and I got a story with that because that was. That was kind of the first time I learned like a, a sport I had no like major familiarity with. And then right. on short term notice, I called the game for. So I was calling games with Tim. And the first time I did play by play, I was, it was a vo- volleyball game. And I understood volleyball pretty good. I was good friends with the coach at the time, Amanda Allian. I knew her when I was an undergrad. Um, Tim was supposed to be play by play and I was supposed to be color. We were kind of wondering where Tim was. Tim usually would show up within an hour and a half, two hours before mm-hmm. a game if he didn't have any class so that he and I could have a little production meeting and go over things and also talk to whoever was the student on camera mm-hmm. to make sure they they knew what they were doing correctly. And all of a sudden, half hour before the game, Alex comes over to the broadcast table and he goes, hey, Ben, just got some some news for you. Tim is sick with the flu. So oh. you're going to be, so it looks like you're going to be making your play-by-play debut and you're going to be doing the post-game interview. And well, I'd already done the post-game interview a couple times before because um, Tim uses a teaching moment mm-hmm. where I was on color with him for the, the previous week's volleyball game. And he decided you're going to do the post-game interview. And he just on the fly gave me the microphone, put me in front of the camera and said, run with it. And, and that was a cool moment because it's like, I did go to the interview, 
but it was also Tim was just like, just say what comes naturally. It's a conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and I look back on that fondly because Tim was right. Like, just, you don't have to get fancy with it. When you're interviewing athletes, just tr- interview them based on what you saw in the game and get their reaction from it. It's, it's that simple. And then a week later, I'm doing play by play with that same team, with that same team. And volleyball is a fast moving sport. It is. It, I've seen first, it like, in the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. In the first two, three minutes, it was a little rough because I was like trying to get the timing down. But then after that, I you was off and sailing. Off, I was off and sailing and it was fine. And then after that, it turned into whenever Tim wasn't calling a game, I was calling it like if he had class or something, or if we had like soccer was going on at the same time volleyball was in Kennedy gym and then soccer was at, down at the field, they would split us and I would call the game he wasn't calling. And right. then, or sometimes if like volleyball got done quickly because soccer takes a full 90 minutes, um, if it was a 3 0 uh, set sweep, I'd do the post game interview, get off the get off there, run down to the to the turf field, get into the booth, have a second headset on standby, and then in the middle of the game, I jump on do color um, with Tim. And doing that was good too because it got me used to doing th- doing the uh, commentary on the fly, and I loved doing that, like finishing one game and then jumping down with Tim and just jumping just right on headset. And he would time it well and cue me in so that it wasn't like so jarring to the audience at home. Fast forward, we get through the winter sports. I was primary for hockey. He was primary for basketball. Um, I jump on color with him at basketball if it was just basketball and vice versa. Um, and oh, someone is streaming. Someone is who is spamming in one of the oh, someone's spamming. Uh, bunch of free giveaways in one of the uh, other discord channels oh great yeah one of maybe on my phone uh gotta yeah, put on a serious hat yeah someone's doing some running some scams and clicking everyone in decons a server someone might want to tell them about that oh so not not in the place that i'm in okay because i didn't see no. anything this is a random invite i got from one of the guys in echo server oh well, Anyways, how about that um Anyways, I was, uh, we get through that and then we're coming into March of 2020. Okay. Infamous time. Nothing ominous there. Nothing ominous there. Uh, Tim and I, uh, call a base. We call a couple baseball games. The field wasn't ready because it was still coming out of winter. So we did a, it was a couple games where Manhattanville played John Jay over at Fordham, over at Fordham. And I love baseball. Baseball, probably my favorite to call having grown up around it, sitting on my grandfather's lap, watching the Red Sox game growing up, like just like baseball. That was like the, and Tim is a huge baseball fanatic too. So it's like, he and I were like, this was the the spring sports was like, we were looking forward to baseball. Um, We did two games there. This was like March 8th, 9th. COVID started to happen in the background. We didn't really think much of it. We thought Rudy, Rudy Gobert touched some microphones. You know who? Yeah. Who? who it, it was just like um, what's it called? The Ebola scare, like eight eight years ago, twenty fourteen. I think people were like, oh yeah, there's this thing going around. Nobody really knew what it was, but I think until maybe a week after the date that you had mentioned, March eighth or ninth, is when things really got serious. 
Yeah, and that's when around things got serious. And then I called a March 12th, the day things were still going to start, March 11th, day before sports stood still. I called a women's lacrosse game alone and because Tim was off that day. And I, th- and I didn't think much of it. And then we, after the game, there was a staff meeting at athletics and we got told by Julene taking over as AD by this point that Skyline Conference was spending sports, which I never thought would happen. And then later that day, I was with Dave Taromeo and one of my professors, Mark Jeffers, on their radio show, The Clubhouse. And because they recorded from the Grand Prix New York go-kart track in Mount, in Mount Kisco. And we called the show and I was a guest on there. And then we go over to watch the basketball game going on at that time on the TV halftime of an NBA game. It gets called Adam silver releases a statement saying we are indefinitely suspending NBA games. And that was kind of the beginning of it. Yeah, I think that's and, when, I think that's when things kind of set in because you can yeah, suspend force in a D three conference, but when it's one of the biggest sports in North America, that's when it really hits you like, Oh yeah, crap, something's about in. to go and down. Literally, literally over the course of the night, you saw MLB, NHL, NASCAR, everybody was just WWE. Everybody was indefinitely suspending events. And by, I think, and then finally the last domino to fall, the Big East tournament was called at halftime of one of the games at 1130 in the morning. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And that was the, that was it. Sports had officially stood still. And I didn't have any, any more. And then I was doing marketing stuff at the college for the athletic department, trying to get sponsors. So then because the markets were tanking as well and people were being forced to close because governor Cuomo mandated it. We, some guys we were negotiating with would have been really cool sponsor partners. We had to, suddenly those deals that were about to come together fell through. And could, I can't blame them for that because people got to batten down the hatches and be conservative with their money. So next few months I spent just finishing up my last of my classes uh, virtually. And then, and then and for the rest of the spring and into the summer um, class session because I finished it. It's the sports business management is a two-year program and I finished it in a year. Okay. Um, I didn't have anything going on marketing wise. So I, we just took inventory of what we had done for the year since Julian and for Robbie and I, that was it on the marketing end. I still kept in touch with them because we had a podcast we did for an independent study called tie games, uh, focusing on sports business uh, last about six episodes. We wanted to keep going with it, but he got a job that was during the day and I'm working primetime television at night. So it was impossible for us to find the time to actually meet up together. And then this summer I'm taking a sports, a sports, a sports media class taught by Mark Jeffers, who is the head of the advisory council for the sports business management program. Mark's great. And I've learned a lot from him and he was teaching me a lot of the business side of television and how to get involved with it. And he had worked at NBC for 20 years. He, he was getting around when the, when the COVID season for baseball was about to start up, 
my now boss and owner of Brand Brigade, Sam Chanillo, reached out to him and was like, hey, I need virtual operators now. Do you have anybody in your class that you're teaching who wants to get involved in television? Mark is a, works now as a, he's a, a consultant in the industry now, and he helps Sam negotiate his contracts. And Mark told him, I have one kid who is, well, not really a kid, but one guy who's interested in working in television on the sports side. Of, of, of anybody from the graduate class of 2020 for sports business management, I was the only one who had an interest in working in television. Everybody else wanted to get involved in coaching, operations, um, mar- uh, marketing, sales, or something of that nature in sport in sports business. I wanted to be broadcasting. So I got that's how I got the Brand Brigade gig. And then during the 2020, 21 year, they wouldn't even allow me up how strict COVID restrictions were. I wasn't even allowed to get on campus to Manhattanville to call games. And we had no games really going on anyway, except for a few exhibition events by the time we reached spring. And not even the entire Skyline Conference was playing in those any games because the SUNY schools weren't even active. It was all the private schools right. in the Skyline. Right. So we kind of had a little bit of a split in the conference over how to handle COVID in the later stages. Was the Skyline Conference, was that, is that like made up of a lot of SUNY schools or is it? Oh yeah. It's about half of them are SUNY schools. Wow. So that's a lot of, yeah, that's a lot of uh, sub, uh, sub campuses there. Yeah. All the bunch of the, pretty much all the D3 schools in the, in the New York metro area, except for not in New Jersey, um, belong to the skyline conference um and it's probably the biggest i'd say it's, I think it's the biggest biggest or second biggest d3 conference in new york and I've, I've, the other one is the empire eight oh, and okay. and during that time because i was an employee of the school i was volunteer because of that i'm not on the payroll and also i had a job i was traveling around the country for while most people were still stuck at home so because mm. of that they couldn't let me on campus pre-vaccination because they don't know where you've been they don't know what you've brought exactly it's a liability Mm -hmm. and then and then going into this past year things were lifting we were going to be resuming sports um we had a new sports information director who's there now at manhattanville john ewan alex left to go to um, new jersey university and I talked, I reached out to, I was there visiting to get treatment from on my back from Scotty. And I go to talk to Julie and I said to Julie, I was like, Hey, now that things are lifting now, um, do you guys need a broadcaster? And he goes, yes, we have nobody for the broadcast. And, and he goes, we have a new sports information director who's also bringing in two new GAs on top of that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and he's never been an SID before he'd been assistant SID. Like God love John. He's great. And he came in under a lot of adversity because of this um, dealing with COVID and also having to train new um, grad assistants while he himself was learning how to be the boss. So they put me in touch with him and, and he and I developed a good close connection like, because he looked at me as like, okay, Ben's been here before. He's familiar with some of the operations. He's been on the broadcasts. As a play-by-play color PA, he can kind of help me transition. I can help him transition into into his role. So that was, and and I enjoyed doing that. 
and also working again with the students and also the new the new grad assistants. And I had a couple of students, there were a couple of students on the for the undergrad student workers who wanted to work in TV production. And because now I had TV production experience under my belt for a couple for a couple of years now, um, I was able, it, it was a good, it was a I loved it because I could actually, it was, I was suddenly transitioning into the role of teacher and mentor. And I was right. mentoring these kids on, yeah, if you want to work in this part of television, this is where you go about it. Here's some of the avenues. Here's some of the like job recruiting websites you can find stuff for. Like I was doing everything I could. Like one of them I even put in touch with who was, her name was Leah, who was my producer all of last year. She was running the actual broadcasting software production truck. And I put her in touch with my bosses and to see if we could get her a job at Brand Brigade. Um, we didn't really have any gigs available at the time, though, but she, from what I was told, she did really well with the training. But I was doing everything I could to help her because she did right by me and was always diligent on time and a hard worker, picked up on stuff well. So I was like, it was, it was a way for me to give back also to a, a place that had been great to me. So then all of last year, I was the play-by-play, except for, like, sometimes I worked with uh, Mike McGinnis, who was mm-hmm. the primary play-by-play for Pace University and for Mercy College at the D2 level Okay. during hockey basketball, because he's a big hockey guy. We, mm-hmm. we would bring him in to call games for Manhattanville. Yeah. And I learned a lot from him, too, because what Mike would do was his preparation. And I hope Mike listens to the show, because I think very highly of him. Um he would come in with a binder full of or folder with like all the rosters for the teams playing that day, mm-hmm. a bunch of facts, stats, trends that he researched himself rather than anything I was with. Like before I would just be waiting for like stuff that John, Alex, or any of the grad assistants would give to me. Cause sometimes they build graphics for it and I'd get, I'd have it going in or stuff that I just, because of my, my mind, because of my mind with, photographic memory with high functioning autism that I remember, but Mike would bring it was like full on his preparation was something I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I started, I started taking that in and started like making sure before games, I was looking up stuff that I could researching things that were trending within the game in the season for the, for the Valiants, whichever team it was that I would bring to the table. And I learned a lot of that from Mike and Mike was also very, He's a very dynamic, outgoing personality, and he and I were always bouncing off each other. He was also a big pro wrestling fan, so sometimes he and I would bounce pro wrestling, <laughs> WWE Attitude Era uh, quotes and references off each other in the middle right. of the broadcast. Right. And John's over looking at us like we're absolutely out of our freaking minds because <laughs> um, he has no idea what we're talking about. Um, but learning that preparation side, I also was also from him was big for me too. Like as I work with different broadcasters, like I like to take a piece of something that they do that I can use to improve my game. Right. And um, I would say that like for myself, I think that the, the way that I started my broadcasting career, it was six years ago. And this was when I was for, for point of reference, 2016 was when you were still in the army, right? You were still in the army around that time. Oh yeah, I was still. So 2016, still you were in the. Left. 2016, you were in the army, and for me, 2016, I was in fifth grade. Oh, 
So just perspective of where we're standing right here. So 2016 um, was the first time that I um, actually started to do public address because the little league um, had this press box or still has this press box with like this, um, this like soundboard from guitar center. That's like, it's ma- it's, it's set up for um, controlling speakers on a stage, not for, um, a, a, like a baseball setting or a sports setting like this is um, for myself, for this, um, for this opportunity that I had, there were a bunch of kids up there that were like, you know, that were announcing their friends up at the, up at the plate. And I really was like, I want to do that because my dad did that. And, um, and, and he did public address work for his little league up near Trenton. And I was like, well, why don't I do that? I would, I wouldn't mind following in that kind of footstep. So, um, and I, and I still even, I still even have back in one of these closets, um, there are cassettes of my dad when he did broadcast work, uh, under an unpaid internship for the Frederick Keys, uh, an affiliate of the Orioles. That was, I was Oh three Oh four. I want to say, um, but you know, a couple of years down the road, um, I did public address like for a couple of batters. I was switching off with like these kids and, eventually it was like 2018 when I was like, yeah, I think I want to, I want to do something like this formally. And 2019 was the first opportunity that I did uh, something other than little league PA. I did PA and my first ever play-by-play for um, this youth football team called the Cougars, which is right down the street from where I am. Um, And I have never worked for my high school. I work on behalf of them and I work with them, but I am not on a payroll. I am not on a salary. I'm not on a contract. Um, I'm not I paid do, by Manhattan. I'm not paid by Manhattanville either. It's all yeah, volunteer. Yeah. It, it's all volunteer work. And I think people realize to get where you want to be. Yeah. You, you're not going to make money doing something at 16 years old. Like for myself, all the baseball games that I did, we, got all the equipment ourselves the camera that i'm using is the same camera that we used for um, baseball games with 50x zoom i can point it 800 800 feet down my block and it will be completely visible and you can see exactly clearly in front of you which is great it's great but the the equipment itself with the battery the backup that we had to have because there was no power outlets where out where we were because we were standing the baseball booth that i have is standing in right center field and we had to set it up ourselves so after school we would like grab wawa grab like a couple of propels or something and we would go over to the field set up the folding table uh set up the chairs and the camera and the tripod and overall the actual setup for the broadcast and for like my audubon listeners that have seen my baseball broadcast the the setup for the whole thing is probably about twenty five hundred dollars um and that was all paid by us the high school didn't pay for anything nobody else paid for anything that was all like a family driven operation and eventually we made up for some of those costs with sponsorships and that's where we tie it back into advertising because people realize yeah advertising's not the cleanest thing in the world it's money being tossed around to promote this 
And it's a win-win situation for both parties. You're promoting their product. You're making uh, a financial benefit out of it. For example, right now for this, uh, for the spring season that we had, we had, I think six or seven sponsors that paid us about $50 each, um, except for the borough, which paid a little bit more an undisclosed amount. And um, at least to the general public and, um, and we probably made about $400 in sponsorships. Now that does not make up the cost of $2,500, but it, it helped. And as somebody that's doing an independent work, I don't, the only service that I do in broadcasting that is not under my own independent work is for high school football. Now there's this thing called NFHS network which probably didn't exist when you were in high school um, or even in college. But have, have you heard of that at all? I don't know if it's, that's just a Jersey thing because it doesn't look like it. It looks like it's a national organization. NF, NFHS network. Do you, know, do you know if you've heard of that? Can you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Uh, the, um, the NFHS network. Have you heard of that at all? I have not. Okay. So that's, that's like a national organization for like high school football. Um, And during the pandemic, when really nobody was allowed except for parents and, um, and like extended family of players to the football games, um, my high school's AD signed a five-year contract with them um, with NFHS network to be the exclusive provider of live stream for football, basketball, and wrestling. Now this does not involve an actual cameraman. What they have is perched up on top of the press box. They have a motion detected camera that moves with the motion, which I think is great for technology, but also like you're going to need a cameraman if something is happening on the other end of the field and you can't see it. So the automated nature of it is both a blessing and a curse. And the, the contract that they had, if they were not under that contract, I would absolutely go to the football games, bring all my equipment with me, go in the press box and point my camera at the field because it would, it would a hundred percent work. I did it for youth football games back in December of, uh, of, of 2021, but the, the contract that they have kind of limits me and what I can do. And I am now currently, um, under approval of the board of ed for, backup PA announcer and play-by-play so that um so that that's a big step as well but and and that's the first case of me actually formally working for the high school and the high school does it's not like it's unprecedented for students to work for the high school we have uh student assistants over the summer that um, work on the Chromebooks, for example, that get distributed to the kids uh, yeah. every summer. They have that. They have um, uh, maintenance assistants that work over the summer mm-hmm. that are students. Yeah. They are paid salaried students. Um, but my role is a little different. And I don't know if I'm getting paid for my work or not. And um, and I probably wouldn't just, I, it's, it's, a t- it's a tough bridge to cross. But um, back in- Yeah, early, in, early, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but early on, and pretty much anybody I've talked to in the industry, as far as like other play-by-plays or just like even just hearing from the NASCAR personalities on Sirius XM, like early on when you're just getting started in this in in the in sports broadcasting, you're not going to make a whole lot of money. No, like it's all about finding gigs, even if you're working for nothing. Basically, it's about it's about getting your name recognition out there 
and growing your portfolio and your and your person your personal brand. That's and what, and one of the things that I was to. told. One of the things that I was told. I went to the Philadelphia Sports Writers um, Convention back in April of this year. I was um, I was recommended to go by my school's athletic trainer um, and um, the lead trainer uh, Scott LePayover, and basically. Uh, he had said, Hey, there's this great thing that goes on in Cherry Hill at the, what was a, um, a crown plaza, but has since been renovated. Cause it was like a trashy hotel kind of thing needed bad renovations and they fixed it up just in time for this convention. But I met this writer named Steve, who used to work for the Philadelphia Inquirer and wrote for soccer, uh, whether it was premier league, MLS, uh, collegiate and high school soccer in the Philadelphia Metro, um, he said that what gets you a job in broadcasting is networking. It does not, yes. you, you yeah. do not get a, you will not get a high quality job in broadcasting by just being good. How do you think, yeah. I mean, partially Joe Buck is where he is now because of Jack Buck, his father. Yeah, but father. in most cases, unless you're in a family tree that is known for this, or if you got a lot of money, um, then you get into the job via networking. And that is how you get gigs. That's like, um, I have a gig that I've been working in the past couple of weeks um, for the Blackwood Little League, about 20 minutes south of me in Jersey. And, um, and I am getting paid by them to do these public address gigs. But I only got the job because I was doing district games from my hometown in Audubon last year. So it took a full year for that contact to come around to me and I was still, you know, up for the task and up for the job. And I have games running all the way until July 15th of this year. Um, long after most youth youth baseball uh, seasons are over, theirs is still running in uh, the form of districts. But um, on another note, you know, broadcasting is is a tough business. Um, you're not a player where you get noticed by scouts. No scout is looking through film footage, looking for the voice. Um, I've seen several of my clips from my games posted on Twitter by like, um, by like recruiting groups for these players, but they're recruiting for the players, not for the guy behind the camera. Keep in mind for high school baseball that I do the play by play commentary. I do it all by myself. I do the camera work and I also control, um, what's it called? Like I also go down, uh, since my booth is in the outfield, I, step away while things are being set up and I go down to both coaches, get the starting lineups, make sure all the pronunciations are right. And then I go back to my booth and I call the game. I do the camera work and the play-by-play. I don't know how I do it, but um, with, I only need one camera because this thing is so, is so good at zooming. I can point it to left field, right field, home plate. It all works. Um, And that's what makes broadcasting so tough is that it's a, it's a, pretty niche job i don't think there's a lot of people that you'll see that are willing to 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 take that extra step and there's only one other person in my high school that is as um as serious about the job as i am and even they do like a whole bunch of different stuff compared to what i do but they don't also work for the high school so well it's also like you said it's like we were saying earlier too like it takes a very specific personality in order to to be in broadcasting like obviously yeah, someone yeah. can have the desi- desire to do it, but you need the personality for it. And I've had, and 
we had no shortage of, broad, of students who wanted to try broadcasting when Tim and I were doing it. And sometimes I'd be paired with us with some other student who was looking to get into it. And there were a couple of kids where some of them were actually pretty good at it. And there were some other ones who it was a just didn't have a, it. No, they didn't have it. It was a dogfight trying to get something out of them. Like some of them were petrified. And if you're going to get eaten alive in broadcasting, if you're if you're petrified of public speaking. Yeah, public and speaking guess, is like a prerequisite for, yeah, <laughs> for, and for I doing guess that. I, and I guess I should have seen the warning signs early on that this was something I was probably meant to do. Because in high school, I did the morning and afternoon announcements my senior year. And that's what and I want to do when I get to be a senior. Yeah. I've, I've, I've already talked I, with the person in charge of that. And I, was a, and I went to a Catholic school. So I was doing the, I was doing the morning announcements from morning chapel in front of the whole school. Oh, Not wow. like on an intercom. Yeah, in front of everybody. Wow. And, and I was a natural at it. And obviously, everything was kind of written down and handed to me to say. Um, but that was the way that was the way it, uh, it happened. And I became uh, and I was very good at it. And then in the afternoon, I did it on the intercom. And it was funny, too, because there, you could see where I could was on the intercom from the doorway to the library. And as I'm reading things off, See, I would always see other students poking their heads in the door, looking at me like, come on, ring the, and saying under their breath, ring the bell, ring the bell. Were you in charge of ringing the bell? <laughs> yeah, like it was on there on the intercom. And as soon as I finished the announcements and put the, uh, hung the, the, the phone for it up, I would hit the bell button and it would do the ding, ding, and I dismissed school. So, wow. I, yeah, like I. I, unless 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 the principal had to make his own, had something else he wanted to add, or Mrs. Lazinski, the secretary, had anything she wanted to add, I controlled the bell. Um, that is that is interesting because the bells at our school are automated, um, so they have gone. If something ran too long, because one of the one of the announcers one time showed up late by like it, they were taking a test or something, and the and the backup was gone, so it was a complete mess. So they showed up late, and in the middle of the announcements, you hear ring, 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 <laughs> and, and then they had to finish that like thirty seconds in like the just most like frantic way possible. Because the bells are automated. They ring at a certain time. I know that my school day gets out at 2.32 p.m., 25 seconds to the minute. And it happens every time because there's not a person, as far as I know, as far as I know, there's not a person that rings the bell. It is automated every time from 8.05 to 2.32. And I think that's what um, sometimes gets in the way for some people. Like, you're in charge of ringing the bell. So you have that pressure under you. You are in charge of dismissing the school. It's automated for like the end of each period, end of lunch, right. things like that. But for, we don't do it for the end of day because sometimes if we have more announcements than usual, mm-hmm. um, you want people to hear that. Over. Yeah. It might go a little over, especially if I'm listing off what games are, because some of the games I read off was reminding people, Hey, this, these games are coming up this weekend for MSJ's um, varsity sports teams. Um, I was reading the detention list. Oh boy. Um, they did. They did that out loud. Yeah. Wow. You. I mean, it's a small. It's a small Catholic high school of only eighty-six kids. So it's like six. Wow. Yeah, that's all we had. Um, Our school's like like eight hundred, and I thought we were a small school. In a small school like that, everybody's going to know each other's business anyway. Yeah. As long as I handled it in a professional manner, it wasn't a big deal. And then also later, like in college, like 
all the public speaking I had to do in student government and student athlete advisory committee, it was just like, the warning signs were there that this was the thing I was probably meant to do. It was just at the time because of my obsessive nature that autism gives me, I didn't, I was, I was kind of blind to it. Yeah. You, you didn't exactly there. see the writing on the wall that you probably oh, I didn't see the writing this. on the wall. Yeah. And then it wasn't until later on when the opportunity got thrown, got thrown my way and that I realized, Hey, this is something I'm meant to do. And like you're saying for the future of networking, like Roland Dratch, who's the producer for the devil's broadcast. He got wind that I do play by play um, on our last day of the season. I sent him a few of my highlight reels and he, he loved it. So there's somebody at MS high on the high in the totem pole at MSG who has my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I was a, they're not going to name names, but I do have a sit down with a pretty big play-by-play for one of the New York sports networks coming up ah. um, where some of the, I, I've known him in passing, but not formally. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has no idea that I do this, but the production, um, the, some of the production folks um, said they wanted to introduce me to him um, formally and to have some highlight stuff prepared. So, and, and that's the other thing too, is like making sure you have some highlight reels prepared. And um, John at Manhattanville is currently working with me because I've done this for a while now is getting a highlight reel together for me of some of my best play calls and my post-game and post-game interviews uh, for, so that I have something to bring to the table um, for these networking opportunities because to these networking opportunities, because we live or die by our highlight highlight reels in those in those instances like you've got to have something ready to go sure i can pull something off twitter from one of my highlight reels that's been posted by the go valiance twitter right but it's good to have something on hand as well that's correct and that's why i always i i actually always carry business cards around um when i go to like sporting events and stuff because you never know who you're going to run into you never know who wants to hear your uh material and what I have is my email and, and cell number on the front, along with the Dan Wilkins Broadcasting logo on, on the back, shows you where to go for the YouTube channel, and it does a QR code so you can scan it on your phone and save it for later. So you don't have to like uh, – like the, the whole thing with the business cards is that we came up with that, that uh, this year because that's an easy way to just give – like I, I always give for baseball the opposing head coach um, or manager my business card because fans of the opposing team – they want to watch the game too. They don't care who I'm biased for because no. they want to watch the game. We had a scrimmage from Enfield, Connecticut. There was a team from Enfield, Connecticut. They were called the Enfield Eagles. They came down to New Jersey for a scrimmage. Now, this isn't the first time that, that the high school baseball head coach had brought a team from out of state for a scrimmage, but it was definitely the first time that I had called a team from out of state. So in one way or another, um, it was a it was a big learning experience for myself and the opportunity to introduce my broadcasting to somebody, to a group of people from Connecticut. That's huge. That's a new opportunity because my circle has been really, uh, you know, comprised of people from Jersey and the Philly area, not really Connecticut or anywhere out of that. So it it worked for for me. And I think that yeah. that uh, was a was an important step, even if it was just a scrimmage and the game didn't really matter. 
Yeah, and I almost did a game for Mercy for for baseball to end the season, but unfortunately it got rained out. And that would have been a paid gig because Mike McGinnis wasn't gonna be able to make it that day. And, and where is uh where is Mercy College? That is over in Dobbs Ferry, New York. It's here in Westchester. Okay. D two school. Gotcha. Um but Mike McGinnis has said for next year that like if he told me, he goes, Hey, if I if I have a gig that I can't make because of something going on at the, at the school I'm teaching at, or if I get the call to do a fill-in gig at the D1 level, mm-hmm. I'm calling you to take my place. He's, right. like, he's like, you're going places. I'm calling, I'm calling you. Yeah. So that's the other thing too, is like just that networking among broadcasters as well. And my advice to you too, Dan, is like whatever, uh, Tim, while he was, cause he was a student, undergrad student when he was broadcasting at Manhattanville, he got paid to do that too. Like, Whatever college you get in with, like for when you go to college, like what, what are your what a sophomore going into your sophomore uh, junior? Going into my junior year. Your junior, okay. So you got a little time. Whatever college you decide to go to, like just make sure, like you immediately get in with the sports information director of that college, and just like let them know, hey, I'm a broadcaster. I've been doing it for X amount of years. Show them some of your stuff, mm-hmm. and getting on the broadcasts for for whatever college you get into because then that, that's basically that's basically the step one for you yes and then you can grow, and then continue to grow your network that way because as you get to know other play-by-plays around the area as well within the conference that'll just grow your opportunities as well and that's what it's done um, for me covering different sports in the colonial conference that's our high school conference called uh the colonial conference and it covers a, a pretty extensive area but um i've met head coaches from 20, 30 minutes away that haven't even really heard of Audubon much. And we are a small town, eight, 9,000 people home to three medal of honor winners, apparently the most per capita in the United States. Uh, and you the call whole, that you, you call that small. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, um, and also the home of Joe Flacco, who I've met a couple of times, but, um, but like for, for example, um, when, we had a playoff game earlier this year, actually in June 4th. It was just about a month ago. We were playing this team, uh, the Woodstown Wolverines from about, uh, no, no, no. This was Washington Township. This was April 30th. So this was, this was not a playoff game, but Washington Township's like 20, 25 minutes away. The only thing that I go to Washington Township for is that they have a Texas roadhouse there. Um, and I had met the head coach of, um, of the, of the Washington Township Minutemen and, um, very nice individual that the whole team was very nice. And after the game, I got in touch with a fellow named John Lewis, who works for the USA Today subsidiary, uh, in the Philadelphia area, also known as the Courier Post. Now the Courier Post was an independent newspaper that got bought out by USA Today, but it was still very important to have that contact. And, uh, that was also a very important game because a freshman threw a no hitter for the first time since 2017. And it was, it was huge to have that broadcasted because it, by like the fifth inning, everybody was getting word that this is going on. And in high school games are seven innings. So when, when we got word that this note, when people were getting word that this no hitter was going on, then everybody was tuning in. I think we had the most viewers of any broadcast that we had concurrently with like 40, 45 viewers at once, which is pretty big. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big amount for a small high school facing a bigger high school. 
Um, in New Jersey, uh, the size of your school is decided through group one through five. Group one is the smallest. Audubon is group one. And group five is like your giant prep schools with that with like nearly 10,000 kids. So um, like and your Hobokins, your Newark Central High Schools, like things like places yeah, like that. Uh, Don Bosco Prep as well, um, and St. Augustine. Those are the those are the giant schools. But um, Washington Township was Group Four, and we had faced a couple more uh, big schools that year, and we actually won a lot of those games. But um, once the season was over, I racked up the I, I counted up the views, and we had gotten uh, about twelve thousand views. As an independent broadcasting provider, I don't have any contracts. The only, co- the only quote, contracts I have are PayPal and Venmo payments to us for sponsorships. And that's what I, that's, that's the ideal situation that I'm in right now, where I am, I am my own boss, really. Um, I control the sponsors that get on the airwaves. I set the payment rates. I, I was influential in what camera I bought and what laptop I had to, uh, and what scoreboard I use because I'm not the, even though I am, um, you know, still, still at a, 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 a young opportunity for this to, for this to go on. But, um, you know, I'm not the kind of person that, that likes to just kind of sit around and be kicked around. I like to, even if, um, somebody's telling me what to do, I like to have my perspective on it and say, okay, well, what about this way? And then even if we can meet in a compromise, then that, then that is ideal for you and in, or, or for me. And in some circumstances, it just doesn't work that way, like in the army. But in my field, in our field, um, there is room for leeway and there is room for the yeah. youngest of the young to have an, uh, an influence in what goes on. And I think that's very important. Now, before and that's we, one, yeah. That's one of the things I love about Manhattanville too, is because- I'm an alumni. I've been associated with the school for 12 years now and in some in some different capacities. Um, the athletic director, Julene, has known me that long, too. She trusts me. So it's like, like, for example, we had both our headsets uh, broke oh, middle, of the, middle of the fall season. I went to her and I was like, hey, we and the SID was having trouble getting new headsets. I went to her and I was like, I went to her and I was like, we hey, we need some new headsets for the broadcast they, and those old headsets had been they, they had been used since people before I was a student there mm. give you a sense of how old they were they're probably almost and so they they give me that kind of autonomy and creative freedom where if like I need a resource still even though D3 school coming out of the pandemic probably on a bit of a shoestring budget they'll give me some leeway with stuff yeah and and it's like, there's a lot of things I can, I, I'm essentially the executive producer as well, because when there's something that specific directions need to be given to the students, I'll, I'll give them that, anything that John doesn't tell them they need to, if there's anything in addition to it that John tells them they need to do. Mm-hmm. And then also like, because we don't have a fancy post-game interview camera anymore because um, at, that was Alex's personal property and he took that with him to Jersey people were looking at me like, what are we going to do for the post-game interview? And I was like, we have all this technology. I looked at one of the student workers. I was like, get your cell phone out and we'll just record it with the cell phone. Text it to John and he'll upload it to Twitter. And we'll call it the Go Valiance Rapid Reaction. Uh, um, and it gained creative. a lot of social, 
and it created a lot of social media traction for for the athletic department because it was um, quick and it's 2022 yeah. people's attention spans are quicker than a snap sometimes of a it, sometimes it'd be a little more long-winded and needed a part two video just because a lot Twitter would happen has in the game limits. i need to talk about yeah and did you only go up to like i think like two minutes and 40 seconds on twitter yeah i think it's um, 220 but yeah, 220. yeah regardless regardless you're going to so sometimes you have to split them in half just mm-hmm. because twitter is stupid that way sometimes you can't be that um, rapid can't be that rapid <laughs> yeah sometimes it, sometimes you need it like especially like especially when something crazy happens right and i passed on and so i would and we would pass it on and it was a good up op- it was also a good opportunity for students to like know how to do things on the fly that you sometimes have to do in the entertainment industry and it, and it and it's created a new approach for it for for the college that's cost effective for a right. D3 school. We're not a D1 power five school where if I need a post request it and I'll know I'll have it the next day. Yeah. You, you don't really have that. There's certain nuances, I have, really there's have, certain nuances I have to pay attention to. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so th- because, and because they give me that, they value my opinion that much. I've always, I've always been very uh, grateful for that. And that's very and, good for somebody outside of your inner circle to, uh, to value your opinion like that. Yeah, exactly. And then just this past, this past May at the award ceremony, they gave me, I had previously gotten the athletic director's award as I graduated my undergrad for my okay. contributions to SAC president, but then they gave, just gave me the, uh, the value plaque, which is the highest honor that the athletics department bestows during their awards banquet. And I was not expecting it. Like I'm not in this for awards and honors. I'm, I do it because I love it. Um, but it was a, it was a very cool moment to like validate that, that I'm doing really good with my broadcasting and my alma mater values me um, contributing as a, not as a, not an alumni, but also just as a broadcaster too. And the things I do for them, so I don't get paid for any of it too. It's a lot of man hours. I don't yeah. It's, it's a lot of and hard I, work. Yeah, and it, and it's what I do is like I'll get my work schedule from Brand Brigade as to what because that's my pay job. What games I'm going to do, what days I have open. I'll send it over to John. And I'll be like, hey, these are the dates I'm open where you can fill me in for for games for the college. Sometimes my virtual schedule will change on the fly because someone wants to swap games with me or somebody gets sick or something like that. And their understanding of that that like, hey, he's he works in big time television, so. Sometimes he may not be available. Like if in October when postseason is going on, forget about it. You're not going to see me. Yeah. Because I'm zipping around across the country. Um, so there's, so, so it's like, it's cool that like I'm in a position right now in my life. Like obviously I'm looking for the next best thing, but it's cool that right now I'm in a position where I can very much in many ways dictate my own work schedule. Or if I want some off time from the virtual stuff, like a day off to like, because if I've gone through a lot of gigs days in a row, it's been a bit of a grind. I can call in my coworkers and be like, hey, you want this gig? Because it's paper game. Yeah. And, and you're not going to turn down 300 bucks a game. No. And so somebody will call and I can take a personal day. Or if there's like a big game that I really, really want to do play by play for, I'll let my ops manager know ahead of time and be like, hey, I'm going to be doing play by play for this at the college. Like it's a big conference conference championship game or something something important yeah yeah something important they'll be understanding of that and they'll shift 
my games around so that maybe I'll do these days instead of that day. And like, for example, like I gave season opener from Haddonville for 22, 23 season is September 1st, triple header volleyball, men's and women's and women's soccer. And I told them, Hey, this is a season opener because I'm the voice of the Valiants. I need to be there. Like I need to be there to start things off. Mm-hmm. And remember games, my ops manager, Bill was super understanding about it. He's like, yeah, sure. I'll just make sure not to put you in on anything for, for September 1st. Yeah. So um, before we, before we wrap up tonight, uh, I will say, do you have any good, what, what do you think is your favorite, uh, your favorite story from your experience, whether from your experiences in broadcasting, whether that's with um, uh, brand brigade with the virtual advertisements or with Manhattanville themselves, uh, it could be a funny story. It could be a, uh, got, lifting story, got, anything like that. I got two. Okay. One from, Brand, one from Brand Brigade Professional Sports, and then one from my broadcasting. This past year, this past season, um, we had a broadcast late April. I had just flown. It was my first game back from after my grandfather's funeral, actually. Um, and I was. Everybody was kind of. And my grandfather loved baseball, as I told you. That was a big influence on me. So you were kind um, of out of it a little? I was a little out of, not necessarily out of it in the game itself, but before the game, everybody was coming up to me, knowing what just happened, how much he meant to me. Because he was basically like a second father to me in a way. Mm-hmm. It was, he was a little more than just a grandfather. Like my grandparents took a direct hand in helping my parents raise me. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were always like coming up to me, comforting me. And then during the game, we had... This is the day after the Texas, the Houston, Texas A and M baseball game with the walk off stolen home that happened this past okay. spring. Okay, yeah, I know what you talk about. We had we ended up having a double stolen home. Oh boy! So here's how the play went, and John was because he didn't have to deal with like the logistics was mm-hmm. on color with me, and he had been I've been wanting to do have him on color with me for a while. We it was bases loaded, and Frank Delgado came up to bat. Freshman, very talented that they they picked up this past year for for Manhattanville. Hits a ball, grounds into the outfield, past the infielders. Two runs come in. He's on first, and another runner's on third. He was trying to go for second, but pit throw came into second, so he tries to run back to first. He's in a pickle. And All he right. gets by both the first he he gets by the second baseman oh. on the run back again after in the course of the throws. And I'm calling this. And little did I know, I forget watching this. Third base is still there. Third baseman and shortstop both ran up, left him and left third base exposed to help second base. Because oh. Frank was just keep giving them the runs, beating out the timing on these pickle throws. It was it, I had never seen anything like. And then I forget the name of the, I think it was board camp was on third. Um, and suddenly it's just him and the catcher. He, and I look over at coach Caulfield, head coach sitting at first base. And he goes like this, a hand gesture going like, go, 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 go. And so board camp goes and all of a sudden throw, realizing what's happening, they throw to home as Delgado and allow Delgado to get to second and board camp slides and he goes like this avoiding getting swiped by the like a matrix dodge of the catcher trying to tag him and he's called safe 
And I'm going nuts because we just had a stolen home. Yeah. Frank, by this point, has already made it to third. Um, well, that after they abandoned him. And the catcher tosses the ball to the pitcher. Oh, pitcher no. turns his back to oh. Delgado, walking back to the mound, and he's just casually walking. Caulfield goes like this again. Delgado goes. And everybody's the ball's screaming, not dead go, go. No, ball's not dead yet. Ball's not dead yet. And everybody's screaming, going, going, going. And the pitcher turns around, scrambles, tosses, lobs the ball like this, the catcher, and it's slow. It's like a slow lob. And the catcher goes down to catch it. And before he can control it, Delgado tackles him. He Ooh. drops the ball and Delgado, and Delgado scores, having cleared the bases from what had been before the play, bases loaded. Wow. Now all four had scored on, on first an RBI for him and then double stolen home. And I'm freaking out. I'm like, and Delgado steals. We have a double stolen home. I don't believe it. <laughs> and the crowd's going out of their mind. I turned to John and I literally say to John, I was like, John, have you ever, and there's a five second pause because John's jaw is literally hitting the floor because he cannot believe what he's seeing. And John goes in all my years in working in sports broadcasting, sports information, I have never seen anything like that before. And we were talking about that during the post-game interview, too. But on my way up to the post-game interview, it was cold out. I told him some of the guys at the gym, I talked to the gym to do it inside. I talked to Coach Caulfield, and I say, I look at Coach, and I was like, I was like, Jeff, what was that? And he just turns at me with this cocky grin, and he goes, and he goes, hey, what can I say? What can I say, Benny? We love to play fast and loose, and he winks at me. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was classic. just like, and it was just like, it was just such a great sports moment. And initially the first one I said, and I was like, it's shades of the Texas A&M walk-off. And then, right. they, and then they, and then they, and then Manhattanville goes and, and just takes that cool moment and just tops it the day after. Like you couldn't have scripted that. Oh yeah. Like, and then as far as my good story for those broad, for, from the Barrier Brigade side, last year, I was the virtual operator. For the first time, the Yankees and the Astros played each other at Yankee Stadium since oh the cheating scandal came out. Oh boy! And I got to the I got to the parking garage on 161st early about noon, and so I come out to go through security, get do my COVID uh, temperature check. There's already I walk around the as soon as I come out around the corner to head towards the security gate. There's a fan that walks right by me. Boom. Boom, hitting two by four off the trash can. He's carrying down the street. And this is noon. And the game's not until 7.05. Oh, my gosh. That guy is an early bird. And there were people. Oh, there were people camped out, like, waiting for this game. Wow. Sitting on the sidewalk. I was like, I looked around. I looked at the security guys. And I was like, you guys are in for a handful today. And, and Michael K walks in. He's looking around. I didn't say anything to Michael K. Michael K. He just grins. I see Michael King just making this big grin. Like he knows. Yeah, he he, he knows know, he knows what's going on. He knows what's about to happen. And packed house sold out, despite despite the fact we're still dealing with I think the Delta variant or the Omicron, whichever variant we were dealing with of COVID by this point. Yeah. Packed house. 
but there were no like, restrictions, so it could it could have been if it, if people yeah, showed I think up. You had, and they some did. Seating, you had some seating that was designated for like unvaccinated people and right. seating for like vaccinated people. By this point, most of New York had been vaccinated. Yeah, but still, it was like raucous crowd. I'm you see people on the on my all the camera angles. I'm looking at the screens, just smashing trash cans, going out of their minds, cursing. We had, we had trouble. The, the director had trouble. Dan Barr had trouble. Like, they were trying to mute the parts of the of the crowd in the broadcast because they were screaming "FL Tuve, FL Tuve," or yeah. to or to different other players that they didn't like, and it was just like we're trying to bl- censor it out. And, and they're struggling with that because to make sure that didn't get on air because Yankees fans are ruthless, absolutely oh, yeah. ruthless. The one game I've, I've seen two games at Yankee stadium. One was a snooze fest in 2013. Cause Chris, Ar- cause Chris Archer threw a complete game shutout against the Yankees when he was with the Rays. Second time was the uh, Yankees fans have decided to play target practice with the Cleveland guardians earlier this year that was my second game yeah because i was i was coming back from boston i was on that i was on the broadcast for that game yeah i just we were there when the gates opened and first thing i saw was um people drinking bud light seltzer at 11 30 in the morning and i was just like that's interesting jesus christ because that's the one excuse to drink at 11 30 in the morning on a sunday i think it was a sunday yeah it was 11 30 a.m on a sunday you're drinking Bud Light seltzer. Um, but that's Yankee Stadium for you. And even though I was even though we got there when the gates opened after after uh, warm ups were done, um, I started to go back up to my seat and it took me until the bottom of the first inning to get there because Yankee Stadium is so difficult to navigate. There's no signs telling you where this stairwell brings you, or at least not to the no. specific section because it's like a labyrinth. It's like a maze. All there is is the signs for the different like next to their respective seating section. Yeah. That's all there is. So it was so confusing. I missed the whole top of the first inning getting there. And I don't like to miss the first pitch. I don't like that at all. So it no. was it was hard to get around. Once I got my food on the lower level, because we were in the 200s that day, um, yeah. down the left field line. And it was just, it was a very weird scene. And there were already tensions. And then once the Yankees walked it off, it just broke out in the pure mayhem. And I wish I had brought my pro camera, my Nikon <laughs> that day, because that would have been just a, a sight to see i i still have pictures on my phone of so, the of the beer cans so to give you a sense too of how ruckus it was with the astros mm-hmm. um the game took four and a half hours because we had to keep pausing because fans were throwing garbage onto the field yeah i, I, think, I, was, I think i remember that and yeah, in some capacity and when the so Dodgers, many fans yeah. so many fans got ejected or arrested I think yeah. it was something like 30, something like just under 30 fans got arrested, Ooh. which is a ridiculous number. Sounds like an and then you also had, Philly. And there was a bunch of teenagers who got thrown out too, because they were shining laser pointers into the eyes of the outfielders for the Astros. Mm. And it's just like, I was like, Come these guys, on. I was like, I was like, these fans are ruthless. They are. They really are. And, um, I've 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 seen with the laser pointers. Somebody did that with a Cardinals batter once in Philly, and they got thrown out immediately. Just like, what the hell are you doing? But um, yeah, when the when the Dodgers played the Astros in LA, that was also a problem because like I think that was twenty twenty one that 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 had happened, and somebody actually there was a foul ball that was hit, and somebody actually threw the ball back onto the field, which caused like a whole ruckus and. 
that game was was pretty much a mess after like but there there wasn't like chaos like the Yankees game it was more like um what's it called it it, it was more like just burning sentiment and burning resentment against this team I don't there wasn't like and the and the Dodgers won the game handily so they were happy they were just booing the Astros every time so but that game was pure chaos in New York cuz I remember watching it on TV or on MLB TV it was it was crazy yeah like the Yankees fans with the Astros it was per, definitely personal because the year they they cheated with the trash can steal sign stealing they beat the Yankees in the ALCS yeah so that was a lot Yan- more personal yeah, that was so. That was because of the circumstances. I completely understand why Yan- why Yankees Nation took that so personal. I understand I was, why they took it personal. I don't. The way I don't that they I'm not condoning. It. Yeah, I'm not condoning the behavior. No, obviously, no, no. but I under I understand the sentiment on why they were feeling the way they were feeling. Yes. No, that makes sense. Um, now, for that game, for um, in particular, or for or for the, uh, for the Cleveland game, uh, for those regular season games, I guess you do work the, does, does Yankee stadium have like those virtual ads during the regular season? I guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I, I haven't have a... noticed them. I usually don't pay attention to them, but I guess that, yeah, is, so that is the case. Because yeah. they're on the back of the mound and they're not supposed to be disruptive. No, um, they're not supposed to be in your face. They're supposed to, no, they're supposed to look like how uh, they would if they were real and painted. Yes. Um, and that's that's what I that's the way we put them on, mm-hmm. and and they rotate every about every inning for the Yankees, um, the Mets. They do they pretty much just do one ad the whole game. Yeah. Um, so that's that's easy. I don't need it as long as it's working properly. I don't need yeah, to that's worry easy. too much about it. I need yeah, to go Yankees, back to the field sometime. Yeah, Yankees. I have to look at like my spreadsheet to be that I get sent um, by the ops managers and be like, okay, make sure I got the right ad in for this inning. Just because it's the most valuable sports property in the oh, yeah. country, like oh, you yeah. can't, you, you don't, you, you got to make sure you don't screw that up. Yeah, that is that is if you put the wrong spot on the line. Yeah, if you put the wrong sponsor in, like, there's there's gonna be hell to pay. Yeah, so um, I will say it's been a great time talking with you, Ben. I've learned a lot. I I had no idea at the start of this that you had served in the army. And um, I had no idea about the extent of your work in virtual advertisement as well. And I think um, that we've had ourselves a great conversation with um, with a lot to learn and a lot um, a lot of insightful conversation that we've had. And these last two episodes for the Dan Wilkins Show has been kind of a, a breath of fresh air. Um, it's been a big learning experience for me in um, in learning to interview people, and I think that it has also been a learning experience for the viewers and the listeners that value the conversations that I have with the guest and our interactions during this time. So Ben, I want to say thank you for joining us tonight because it's been a long time. And I think that, um, that learning this um, information and, and how you conduct your work is going to help me in my field. And it'll be uh, purely beneficial how uh, um, and on how that all works out. Um, so I will say um, for, uh, for yourself, um, you do a great job with Manhattanville, with the games that, I, that I've that i seen, um, with the work that I've seen. And I think that both of us seem to have a, um, a, a good idea of where we're going um, and, and how to take it. And um, I think that that's going to carry um, a lot of people um, to a great, great opportunity in broadcasting. So thank you, Ben, for joining us. 
Um, I hope you had a good time. I did, Dan. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I'm always happy to, and feel free to call me, reach out to me anytime. I'm always happy to impart career guidance, advice if you need help on anything. Um, feel free to send me your contact info. I can pass it on to, to folks I know here in Westchester if you're looking to, for any gigs up here as well. Well, thank you, Ben, very much, because that is, um, if I'm ever up there, I might, I might need something like that. So from episode 13 of the Dan Wilkins show, as I look at the camera for the first time in two hours, because I've been looking at my computer screen all day, episode 13 of the Dan Wilkins show from Ben Smith. I'm Dan Wilkins. We're signing out. We'll see you next time.